The April 1938 edition of the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Meteorological Society featured research from an unknown amateur scientist named Guy Callender, spelled with two L's. A steam engineer by profession, Callender was interested in atmospheric science and spent his spare time at home in West Sussex collecting and calculating temperature measurements from 147 weather stations around the world. He did all of his calculations by hand. Although the journal article went relatively unnoticed at the time, Callender's findings have had a sustained impact on climatology for the past 80 years because his was the first research to link global warming to CO2 emissions. A 2013 recreation of Callender's research using modern-day techniques confirmed the accuracy of his original findings. Callender concluded in the article that the combustion of fossil fuels and the subsequent warming of the Earth might actually prove beneficial to mankind by improving agriculture in the North. In any case, he wrote, the return of the deadly glaciers should be delayed indefinitely. Today, we'll hear from Professor Vincent Ponce about his case entitled Climate Change, Paris and the Road Ahead. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Professor Pond studies questions in political economy and development with the goal of understanding how to make rights and services more accessible to everyone. Vincent, thanks for joining me today. Brian, thanks a lot for having me. This case is basically sort of ripped from the headlines. I mean, this topic has been everywhere for a long time now, and the case goes into some of the history of it, which I'd like to ask you about. But let me just ask you to begin by sort of setting it up for us. How does the case start, and where do we go? So the case starts with Paris. The case starts with uh, the Paris Conference on Climate Change, uh, which took place in 2015. And uh, it actually starts with the very last day of this conference, in which all the delegates that participated in the conference reconvened to discuss the last hurdles. And the case shows how this hurdle was surmounted, and uh, it shows how the room erupts in acclaim when the president of the conference, French Minister for Foreign Affairs, Laurent Fabius, bangs his gavel and uh, the agreement is adopted. Great celebration there. And actually, I loved the opening of the case because it settles on one one word in one sentence of probably an enormous document, and that one word was preventing the United States from signing it. Uh, what prompted you to write this? You're in the business government, international economy uh, department here at, at uh, the business school. Uh, so this has kind of been your sweet spot, I guess. Yes, I mean, this case was prepared for a class called Biggie, Business Government in the International Economy. And I wanted to write this case because I think climate change is one of the most important problems, perhaps the most important problem um, that is facing us today. So I thought, you know, that all the students uh, coming to HBS should think about this issue. And I had another personal motivation to write the case, which is that I realized I knew so little about the problem. Mm. So writing this case was also an occasion for me to learn about climate change and to learn about the efforts conducted by the international community to address climate change. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the intro, I alluded to uh, the fact that somebody had been looking at this as long ago as 1938 and probably before. But when did people, you know, really start to talk about climate change in a serious way? So you mentioned Steve Callender. Actually, there were some scientists that had done some work even before that, uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, this uh, Steve Arrhenius uh, was one of the first ones to ask whether the increase in temperatures that he was observing was correlated with carbon emissions. But uh, for a long time, uh, scientists didn't really know, actually, 
uh, whether climate change was happening. And uh, in fact, after World War II, there was a period of global cooling. There was a period in which temperatures were decreasing in the world in the 1950s and 60s. So you had a few popular books that were written predicting the return to uh, a, a global ice age. Yeah, and, and even today, people will say, I think the, the case mentions a tweet by, by President Trump saying that he's in L.A. and it's cold, and so global warming is a hoax, right? Yeah, I mean, climate change science is extremely difficult, and it is hard to make a compelling story, a compelling narrative, something that uh, echoes people's perceptions. Um, and so it took a long time, but eventually a scientific consensus was reached saying that A, climate change was happening mm -hmm. and temperatures were increasing, B, uh, the reason was mostly human activity, and C, the consequences would be mostly negative. Because again, on that, for a long time, people didn't know, you know, past climate change is happening, past temperatures are increasing, but that's for the better good. Like, you know, we would all uh, enjoy one or two additional <laughs> Celsius degrees in Boston. Yeah, that's true. Very true, particularly after this winter. Um, so we know the scientists agree, or 97% of the scientists agree, some, some number like that. But not everybody agrees. Can you talk a little bit about how the debate has sort of unfolded over time? Yes. So as I mentioned, there was this period in which people thought that uh, there was a global cooling, then eventually a scientific consensus was reached. And after this consensus was reached and more and more evidence was accumulated to understand why climate change was happening and what the most devastating consequences could be, um, the international community came together and said, look, the scientists are telling us that this is an urgent problem, so we better act on it. And so you saw um, in parallel a progress of science and a progress of international discussions and negotiations on the issue. Yeah, and you talk a lot in the case about the Kyoto Protocol. Can you describe that a little bit and, you know, sort of why, why didn't it work? Yes, so the Kyoto Protocol was um, achieved as part of 1997 negotiations. And uh, it was a very ambitious uh, agreement because the idea was that um, all the countries that were part of the protocol, and in particular the developed countries, would take commitments to reduce carbon emissions mm -hmm. and uh, that these commitments would be binding, meaning that if they did not fulfill their pledges, sanctions would be imposed on them. The difficulty with the protocol was first that it only included the developed countries. Developing countries did not have to take commitments. And so the U.S. at some point said, look, that's not a fair agreement because uh, some of the largest emitters are developing countries. And the second thing is that the binding part, which looks so appealing ex ante, proved to be difficult to implement. At some point, Canada, for instance, withdrew from the protocol because it realized that the protocol and enforcing uh, the protocol would become too costly for them. And so you realize that, you know, what, what can you do if a country steps out? Are you going to invade a country because they didn't fulfill their pledges? There was not really a mechanism of credible sanctions that could be implemented. So you've got, you're starting to see uh, the key ingredients of a workable solution would have to involve something that's enforceable, something that's equitable, right? And, and this is where I think the case really gets very interesting because you start to see the difference in the way it's approached from a political standpoint versus from a business standpoint. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the Paris Accord, what was the sort of catalyst that, that moved people in that direction to that Paris meeting? I think first it was the collapse of the Kyoto Protocol. So people realized that we couldn't rely anymore on this Kyoto Protocol to 
uh, achieve a solution. And the second is that um, scientific facts were being accumulated. And so the scientific evidence was um, more and more pressing uh, for um, countries to come together and try and address the problem. And it's interesting, the case features a number of different actors, including the Pope, that called on all countries uh, to come together and take this issue uh, seriously in the name of uh, uh, preserving the planet for the future generations. Yeah. And, you know, you would think that with that kind of momentum, uh, you know, the, certainly this thing would, would succeed. Um, but then we fast forward to 2017. And uh, I mean, the, the case, the title of the case talks about Trump's uh, pulling out of the Paris Accord. So, you know, what um, in the U.S., this conversation seems to unfold differently than it does in Europe. And the case starts to talk about the way different areas of the world respond to the whole discussion on climate change. Why is Europe, like, better prepared to talk about this or more willing, it seems, to do something about it? I see two factors. Uh, the first one is that um, in Europe, you see more support for uh, state action, state intervention, state regulation than you see in the US. There's this underlying hypothesis that the state uh, is, is, is good, you know, on average, uh, whereas in the US, it's rather a face in the market. A second factor is um, the importance played by green parties. The case discusses how the voting systems in uh, France, in Germany, allow for the emergence of green parties in the 1980s, 1990s. Mm -hmm. And these green parties have made climate and the environment more broadly their central issue. So they have forced other parties to also talk about the issue and uh, propose actions uh, on climate change. Yeah, but you would think, though, you know, in Europe where you've got um, all these different borders uh, to cross, to make something work across all those borders would be difficult. But the European Union was sort of the key to, to sort of pull them together. Is that right? Yes. So what the EU did as part of implementing the Kyoto Protocol among uh, European countries was to adopt what they call an emission trading scheme. So the idea was, you know, Let's create a market in which companies can exchange rights to pollute. And the beauty of this market is that uh, you will end up with the companies that are most efficient at reducing carbon emissions taking the largest burden. So you will end up with the most efficient solution, with the least costly solution to reduce a certain number of uh, carbon emissions. What made this possible is the existence of the European institutions, the supranational institutions, which so to say forced or coordinated European states to be part of this uh, emission trading market. Yeah. How important was the role of business, uh, if I think about Europe in particular, in driving forward with some of these changes? So I see the role of business as uh, twofold. The first is within existing regulation to try and do R&D to decrease the cost of uh, reducing emissions. So R&D is extremely important. Technological improvements are extremely important. And sometimes business can actually demand more regulation. Uh, the case features a few companies whose uh, business model is to help other companies reduce carbon emissions. And mm -hmm. so these companies have an interest in um, uh, more binding regulation and um, more demanding uh, objectives. Yeah, and certainly uh, any company who can talk about the fact that they're trying to make progress on this front, it's good for their brand, right? It's good to attract millennial workers to come be there. Nobody wants to work for a company that's, that's polluting and not taking this seriously. Yes, I think there's increasing pressure on companies to attract some millennials who want to have a meaningful job because they face pressure by other companies that uh, 
uh, want to have green solutions. And they also increasingly face pressure from finance, which is, I think, a very important evolution. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've, um, I've had the great fortune to go to China several times, and I feel like every time I go, the pollution is worse than it was the last time that I was there, and people are routinely walking around with masks, and you can just sort of feel it. How did China, how did they respond uh, to the Paris Accord initially, and, and what, what's their role as, as we now have seen the deck chairs change with Trump pulling out of the accord? China has exerted increasing international leadership on the issue. First, I think the Paris Agreement would not have existed without China saying, yes, we're going to come to the table. Actually, even before the agreement, they had a mini agreement with the U.S., a bilateral agreement in which uh, both the U.S. and China announced their pledges. This coordinated the international community on uh, demanding a, a good agreement. After the agreement, many people thought that China perhaps would uh, drop out as well when they saw the U.S. dropping out. And instead, they have decided to move from co-leadership on the issue to uh, solo leadership. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. And I think one of the reasons is the one you mentioned, which is that there's a lot of pressure by the Chinese people and their government to reduce pollution in the cities and to make the air more breathable. Do you think they're serious? I mean, do you think they're really committed to doing this or are they doing it because it's politically expedient to make the U.S. look bad? No, I think they look really, you know, relatively committed on this. Uh, first, again, because the population has really uh, demanded serious action on it. But I think you're right that there's another component, which is this is an occasion for China uh, to step up and to uh, show that it can play a better role and a more important role internationally on an issue in which uh, their role might be celebrated by uh, other partners. You see in the case, European commissioners celebrating China's increased uh, efforts on climate change. Yeah. And uh, so let's go back to President Trump's decision to withdraw. What are the implications of that? And, and how uh, have business leaders in the U.S. responded to that decision? So I think that President Trump's decision to withdraw was driven in part, uh, it was, it's in, in part the a prolongation of uh, tensions and polarization on the issue between Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. And one of the reasons is that uh, uh, Republicans have seen climate change as a risk in the sense that addressing climate change would require more federal intervention, mm. which traditionally Republican leaders have opposed. Another reason was uh, the motivation to preserve the coal industry, which is the industry that would indeed suffer a lot uh, from reducing uh, carbon emissions. The reaction, interestingly, in the business community has been to say, no, we actually believe in climate science. And uh, many business leaders have said, even though we might, as a country, withdraw from the agreement, we individually, our companies, cities have said the same, states have said, we're going to try and fulfill our pledges, the U.S. pledges in the Paris Accord. And they joined this America's Pledge Coalition. And they signed the We Are Still In Declaration. And you see many business leaders that are taking action on this issue. So does that effectively, I don't know, uh, disempower the president uh, from withdrawing? I mean, so he's withdrawn in, in word only, but in, in actions, we're still moving forward. Yes. I mean, first, technically, the withdrawing is only possible in um, 2020 mm. um, because it takes four years to be able to withdraw after uh, the agreement was signed. And uh, second, yes, I think to some extent, these people that are stepping in are saying, look, 
The climate policy is not only implemented at the federal level, uh, it's also implemented at the state level, the city level. And uh, I think they are yeah, disavowing a little bit uh, this decision by Trump. Interestingly, there was in December a conference in Bonn in which all the countries were represented to continue the discussions on climate change. And uh, the only country without a pavilion was the United States. Interestingly, this uh, America's Pledge coalition decided to set up their own pavilion, <laughs> uh, their own non-official pavilion. And I think, yes, this is to some extent disavowing the federal policy. We talked uh, earlier about the fact that in order for any policy to really be effective, it has to be enforceable. But the Paris Accord is, is non-binding. So how is that any different than the Kyoto Protocol? So the non-binding part is the major difference. The idea of the Paris Agreement is that countries make unilateral pledges. So each country decides on their own, without any other country intervening, that they are going to reduce carbon emissions by a certain level, let's say by 2030. And, uh, you know, there's no pressure or no official pressure on these countries in terms of setting up the target and fulfilling the target. And there is no sanction that is associated with non-respecting the target. So many people have looked at the, at the agreement yeah. and said, look, it's a joke. Right. I mean, uh, um, you know, countries can adopt targets that they know for sure they will be able to implement. And even if this was not the case, they would be able ex post to say, sorry, we didn't fulfill our targets. We'll try to do better in, in, in the future, but without any consequence. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. That's interesting. Yeah, I think the mechanism, the hope is that... Uh, even though there's no formal sanction mechanism, that there can be symbolic pressure exerted by countries on each other uh, so that A, they fulfill their targets and B, moving forward, they adopt increasingly ambitious targets because there's this uh, revision mechanism in which countries every five years reconvene. Um, what's binding is that they have to update other countries about their progress. And uh, the hope is that in every five years, countries can adopt more ambitious targets for the future. So you've taught this uh, to MBA students. I'm just curious. You don't have to give away the case, but uh, any big surprises in, in their reaction? I think for many MBA students, the case was also an occasion to learn about a topic that everyone talks about, but you know, so few people know actually about. And so uh, they felt that the case was, was important from that point of view, and they also felt that the case allowed them to ask themselves what they would do on the issue as future leaders and what could be done, what should be done by economic leaders. The case asks whether a CEO, for instance, should uh, try to address the environment as one of their main goals or instead should focus on maximizing shareholder value. These are very important, very difficult questions, and I think the discussion on this uh, was extremely interesting. That's great. Vincent, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. If you've enjoyed hearing about this Harvard Business School case, subscribe to Cold Call on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We post new episodes twice a month. And we'd love to hear your thoughts, so please post a review. I'm Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call, an official podcast of Harvard Business School.